And I'd like you to turn in your Bibles this morning to 1 Corinthians chapter 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, we're going to begin reading in verse 23. So if you can turn there, 1 Corinthians 10 and verse 23, and uh, we will begin. So verse 23 says this, it says, I have the right to do anything, you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. Eat anything sold in the meat market without raising questions of conscience, for the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. If an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go with him, Eat whatever is put before you without raising any questions of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it, both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience. I am referring to the other person's conscience, not yours. For why is my freedom being judged by another's conscience? If I partake in the meal with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of something I thank God for? So whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews or Greeks or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way. For I am not seeking my own good, but the good of many, so that they may be saved. Follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. It's a fascinating text. I want to begin by sharing uh, with you uh, a made-up story. Uh, you go to a yard sale, and it's a yard sale being held by a widow who is liquidating the tools that her husband had accumulated for years. He was a mechanic. And you see an item sitting on the table for $40, and your heart starts to flutter because you know that sucker's worth $500. She is simply unaware of its actual value. What can you do and what should you do? You can buy it for the asking price. You can be a total jerk and offer her $30 and brag about the deal that you got. What should I do? No, I think what you should do is not focus on the deal that you can get based on her ignorance. I think the Christian thing to do, the thing that you should do or ought to do, is to tell her what she needs to know about its real value. I know this is actually worth $500. If you want to sell it to me for $40, i will be glad to buy it. I'm your guy. You see, often in life, there's a difference between what you can do and what you should do. My favorite yard sale verse is in Proverbs Chapter 20, verse 14. Here's what it says. I want you to listen to this. The buyer haggles over the price saying, it's no good. Then brags about getting a deal. And what Proverbs is indicating is that is pure evil. Self-centered living. The text that we're looking at this morning is very simply a text about what Christians can do and what Christians should do. 
And this brings us into the category of what we would call wisdom issues in Scripture. There are a whole lot of things that are not directly addressed in Scripture, yet that biblical principles weigh in on our decision-making in. And so as we work through this text, we're going to see that Paul starts with the slogan. People are saying, I can do anything. I am free in Christ. I have carte blanche freedom. I'm not bound by anything. But I think something that's already clear from the rest of the book of 1 Corinthians is that Paul is not in this observation talking about things that are immoral, right? 1 Corinthians clearly addresses issues of morality. It addresses issues of unity in the church and not getting into party spirits. The text has clearly addressed issues relating to sexuality, that sex outside of marriage between a man and a woman is out of bounds for a believer, So the text has laid out clear moral boundaries. But here's the question I want to address this morning. What about the issues that Scripture does not expressly address? That it doesn't directly speak to? What do we do about those areas where there is no rule from the Bible? Many many people want the Bible to be a rule book. They don't want to live by the broader principles of loving God and loving your neighbor. We want a rule for everything. Can I go see this movie? Yes or no? Can I listen to this music? Yes or no? How much should I give to the work of God financially? Yes or no? Give me a set. We love rules. And this text is going to drive you away from the idea of rules and move you to think about principles because there are a large number of issues in our life that are not expressly addressed in Scripture. And so what I have to do is be wise as a believer, not a rule keeper, but a wise Christian who takes biblical principles, who thinks about what it means to love God and love your neighbor as I go to the yard sale. Okay? Does that make sense? Wisdom will help you to understand what you ought to do, not what you can do. My can-do will always defer to my benefit. My can-do is not loving of others. The should-do is. And so this text is going to seek to differentiate between what someone can do and what someone should do. I want to give you an illustration. We say to the kids in church, especially the more uptight types, they shouldn't be running in church. My response is, show me a verse. Smart kids know this. Okay? The Bible does not, please hear me well, the Bible does not say that running in church is immoral. Can I give you an illustration? If I yelled fire right now, okay, some of you would run. Would that be immoral? And the kids are saying, amen, I never thought of that. Okay? Running in church is not immoral. You can, but should you? Here's what we told our kids. When you're in the church building and there are people older than you around and your running makes them uncomfortable, it becomes wrong. So we have a rule, okay, that we say to the kids, if you're in the halls, see kids running, say, kids, here's what I do. I always say, hey, no walking in the halls when I see them running. And they kind of They pause and they look at you like, okay? So the running in the hall is not immoral. However, if running in the hall makes a senior uncomfortable, it becomes wrong because it is not honorific. It doesn't acknowledge their age and 
change and alter my behavior for the benefit of that person. Does that make sense? So it's not immoral to run in church. But it becomes immoral if it starts to give discomfort to people around you because it's not showing the preciousness of others. Okay, so that's kind of a, a general principle. Just a difference between what I can do and should do. Okay, you can run, you should not run because here's what it does for other people. Okay, so here's the question I want to ask. As we face those types of circumstances in our lives, when we're asking, can I, and somebody says, well, the real question is, should you, what principles does this text bring up that help guide me through what I can do compared to what I should do? Okay, I'm going to give you three, I'm going to call them tests, you can call them principles, I'm going to give you three thoughts that emerge from the text that help us to understand, can I do anything as is suggested in the first verse of the text? Particularly in this case, in relationship to the issue of meat that was in, 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 in the presence of uh, ancient uh, temples and it was part of the worship of idols. What, a, what do you do about that stuff? James has led us through a lot of this text already. This is complu- concluding principles that help us deal with things that the Bible does not expressly prohibit or encourage. So the first test that emerges is... In verse 23, I have the right to do anything, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. Those are the words that's used. So what's the test that applies to determining whether I should or shouldn't? Can or can't? What's the test? And I think this is the first test. Does my participation in that behavior help or hinder a brother in Christ? Does it hurt their walk with God or help their walk with God? So the fundamental concern is not, do I enjoy it? I can justify a lot of things on the basis of what I enjoy, but it doesn't mean it's best. Okay, so Paul's question is, does it help others? Does it hinder others? Is it good for the encouragement of others in my sphere of influence? Now, in verse 24, he's going to say, and this is the principle, no one should seek their own good but the good of others. That becomes the underlying principle about what I can do and should do. Okay, you'll notice when you get to the end of the text, verse 33, he says, I am not trying to please, or I am trying to please everyone. I am not seeking my own good but the good of many. Those two statements act as parenthesis on this text. So I know that everything comes in between is driving me towards behavior that is beneficial to my brothers and sisters in Christ. The test is not, do I like it? The test is not, can I? The test is, should I do this? Galatians 5.13 is a verse that many are probably aware of. It says, you have been called, brothers, to freedom. But don't use your freedom to satisfy your selfish, sinful desires. Use your freedom to serve one another in love. Okay, there's a parameter. That's a boundary that Paul is reemphasizing in 1 Corinthians 10. So, don't do everything you can do. Do what helps. That's the first principle. I want to think of that. When I'm thinking of participating in something, how is this going to affect people around me? had a situation with uh, someone that I'm a partner with in a house that we have rented out. We have had struggles with this person paying the rent on time. It has been 
over and over and over again. It's the part that landlords love, okay? And we were discussing recently, well, you know, it's been four years. It's been tough. We should raise the rent. We had this discussion. We said, well, the, the person's actually come a long way. They start, started paying on a regular basis. And I said, well, we can, but should we? Okay? Take into account the whole picture. Thank God I have a partner that, that is very helpful in this way, understanding of that concern. We can, but the question isn't, can we get away with it? They won't leave. They'll stay. They'll be a good tenant. The question is, should we? Is it what's best taking into, into account the whole picture of their life circumstance, which is incredibly dangerous to start to slip into? But in that case, I said, you know what? We can, but I don't think we should. And we came to an agreement on it and said, okay, we're not, we're not going to do that. Just because I can gain benefit for myself does not mean that it is always the right thing to do. Take into account the circumstances. Think about the life of the person that your decision is going to affect and ask yourself, does it help or will it hurt? What I can do is not always right. Now, I want to make an observation from the broader context of what started in chapter 8. Everything that we have talked about in terms of these kinds of principles about making difficult decisions and determinations and kind of figuring out what we can and, can and shouldn't do, those types of things, flies on a massive assumption in this text. The massive assumption in this text is that every decision I make as a brother in Christ to you, it, there's an assumption in this text that it is all done in the context of community. Now, let me just illustrate it this way. I'll use Dave Mercer, okay? The text assumes that when I make decisions, I'm relatively close with Dave, right? We'll talk on a regular basis and interact. And Dave's aware of my decision-making at some level. This text assumes that brothers and sisters in Christ, when they make decisions, are living in a close enough proximity to others that there is an effect of that decision on everyone around them. There is no assumption in this text that these people gathered on Sunday morning when Anna lived life independently, apart from others, and they came back together Sunday morning having no clue about what happened through the week. Holly, are you going to get mad at me? Okay. The text assumes that I'm living in the context of relationships that are shaping my life. The sad thing in the Christian community in America is that we are so darn individualistic that when we make decisions, most people never know we made them because we don't live transparent lives. We don't think we need advice from other people in the body of Christ, and yet the text that Doug's going to preach on in a few short weeks is going to drive home the point that we live life together. And if I'm constantly making decisions and no brother or sister in Christ is ever aware, I am living too far in isolation. And I cannot even begin to understand what this text is talking about if the decisions I make are not observed by other believers. Okay, so the challenge is, God, help us. Help us to understand that as, if a young man starts dating someone, that there's an assumption that people in that person's sphere of influence are aware of the relationship and are being asked to weigh in on it. They're thinking about how does this decision in my relationship with this girl, if I'm a guy, how does my decision, how does my relationship with this person affect my brothers and sisters in Christ? 
That's the assumption of the text. And it's a massive assumption. It doesn't even have to be said. It's just assumed that when decisions are made, somebody else is affected for better or for worse, positively or negatively. So as I live, I need to become more and more conscious of this, is what I'm deciding to do or not to, helpful or hurtful to a brother in Christ? Okay, and look, folks, I'm going to be very, just, I'll make this simple. I can go back to the foundational commandment that Jesus gives. Love your neighbor as yourself. When you make decisions, think about how it impacts those that are in relationship with you in the body of Christ. So case one is clearly there's a, a believer who's observing your life, and you need to be careful how you live in relationship to them. The text then switches in verse 27 to outside of the body of Christ. Notice what it says in verse 27. It says, if an unbeliever invites you to a meal and you want to go, eat whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Okay, so, someone that is not in the community of Christianity invites me to their house for dinner. Paul's saying, well, you can ask yourself the question, what did Jesus do? Everybody always wants to ask, what would Jesus do? Hypothetical can get you out of a lot of things. I think you really should be asking, what did Jesus do? You know what Jesus did? He spent so much time with unbelievers. He spent so much time with difficult people that he got a bad reputation from it. Okay? That's the truth. Am I engaging with people around me for the sake of the gospel? This text makes an assumption that the answer is yes. So somebody invites you over for slow-cooked braised beef. My response is yes and amen. If I was Italian, my response would be manja. Okay, but it's, I'm not, so I don't know how to say it in German or I would. But the text then says, but, and you just, just, right when you're ready to eat a good meal. Verse 28, but if someone says to you, and who is the someone? It's someone at the table. Are they a believer or unbeliever? We don't know. The text doesn't get specific. But it's someone who in their conscience isn't yet free from the fact that just because something was in the idol temple, it's not necessarily or essentially tainted by an evil spirit. That's a kind of a, an idea that runs rampant in our culture today in many churches, that everything that's ever been somewhere, is, it's this, it's that, it's been touched by this. It's, it's, that's not what Paul's saying. Paul's saying, I don't care where it was. If they put it before you, the text in verse 27 says, eat what is ever, whatever is put before you without raising questions of conscience. Don't say, um, no, just eat it. Enjoy it. But if someone says this was offered in sacrifice to an idol, then do not eat it. Why? Not because of your conscience. No, what does the text say? It says, Do not eat it both for the sake of the one who told you and for the sake of conscience, not your conscience, but the other person's. So if someone in their thinking believes that that piece of meat, because of where it was, is essentially tainted in a way that makes it dangerous, don't say to them, ah, come on, get over it, eat it. Paul's like, that's, it's not loving to drag someone past a proclivity that they have in their conscience. It's unloving. Okay, so 
Here's a rule of thumb that I use, okay? I'll occasionally have a glass of wine. If I'm with someone that struggles with abuse of alcohol, it is not loving for me to partake, in my opinion, it's not loving for me to partake of that in their presence, nor is it hypocritical to partake of it in another setting. The question is, will it help or hinder the people that are in the context of that decision? It's a question we have to ask, and it's a question driven by a desire to see others helped, loved, and encouraged. The idea is that you may be well aware that idolatry does not necessarily contaminate the meat itself. But if the person's conscience, when they eat it, they're going to be thinking, maybe, don't. It's that simple. So when you think about decisions in your life, entertainment, think about the movies you watch or the music you listen to, start asking yourself the question, Is this going to be helpful to people around me that presumably are close enough to me to know the decisions that I make in my life? Does it help them or does it hurt them? That's the test. I can, but Paul, I think, is very clearly saying, in this case, I should not. Now, so the first test is, does it help? Okay? Second principle that emerges in the text is this. And this, I, I'm calling this the ultimate text. So the first one is the benefit text. Does it help other people around me if I do that? The second question is the ultimate test. Verse 31. Listen to what Paul says. Paul says, so whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. So this is the ultimate test of life. Okay, this is the the, the claim that matters most. This is comprehensive and all-inclusive. Whatever you do, do it all. Those terms lead me to understanding that Paul is talking about the full scope of Christian life. For Paul, there is no division between the sacred aspects of life, churchy stuff, and the secular aspects of life. Paul does not abide such a way of thinking So that when I'm in the workplace, I can use this language because you can't survive there without it. But in this context, I use this language. What is Paul saying? Paul's saying in everything we do, in all settings, choose behavior that recognizes and exalts the glory of God. I want you to think about this. Do my life decisions raise God high? Do they make him worthy of worship, praiseworthy? Do I have such a deep affection for God that it is literally transforming and changing my daily life? Whatever you do, do it all in a way that God can be looking directly into that circumstance and be pleased and honored. One writer said it this way. He said, therefore, in light of this verse, no act of life itself either religious is either religious or secular. Can I, I, I'm just going to throw a little thing because this is something that I get so convicted about and I try to work on. I get done shopping at Home Depot and I have the cart. And there's a place where carts should go. No, let's say it this way. There's a place where carts can go. Honestly, man, if I look around, I've gotten pretty good at letting that baby just sit there without moving. You know what I'm talking about, right? 
You're going to leave it in the middle of the parking lot. You know you shouldn't. But if I can get it to not roll and damage someone's car, I'm good. So, so in my sinful self, I will confess to doing this. Maybe recently. Maybe not. Okay? I look around. I look around because I'm a local pastor, so I got to make sure nobody's sitting in their car on their cell phone. What I can do, leave it stable, won't hurt anybody's car, and what I should do are very different. If I think about glorifying God and it's raining really hard, I really still should do the right thing. Because somebody is watching. That is all about preferring others above yourself. That's all about doing everything I do for the good of others and the glory of God. That, that's a silly illustration, but that changes every part of your life. It'll change, husband, how you go up towards bed if you see dishes in the sink and you're thinking, she'll get it. You're a jerk. <laughs> I've done that, Okay. Like, what helps the people around me? What benefits, what encourages? Henry Jowett said it this way. He said, and so all my days would constitute a vast temple and life would be a constant worship. This is surely the science and art of holy living to relate everything to the infinite when I take my common meal and relate it to the glory of God in gratitude, the common meal becomes a sacramental feast. When my labor is joined unto the Lord, that sacred marriage turns my workshop into a church where God is worshipped. When I link the country lane to the Savior, I am walking in the Garden of Eden and paradise is restored. God, help us. Help us to let everything for the glory of God, everything, my interaction with the coach at my son's baseball game, my interaction with the, with the, with the worker at the restaurant, my interaction with the, with, the, with the waitress or waiter at the restaurant, everything is transformed. Now, here's the struggle. If I start to live like that, won't I sacrifice some of my own happiness? All right, so the simple answer is this. I'm happier if I don't have to walk two sections of the Home Depot parking lot to put the cart in the right place. I am. I saved a little time. I get back in my car and I'm on my way. No skin off my back. I feel happier. But am I really happier? Can I challenge you that a lot of times we're choosing between happiness and happiness? Between temporary happiness and true happiness. And I think we often fail to choose the real thing. I think this principle that Paul gives, whether therefore you're eating or drinking, whatever you're doing, this, this answers the question, do it for the glory of God. And if you can't do it for the glory of God, don't. Even if you can, you should not. And life begins to be transformed. Your purpose for getting up in the morning changes. It's not about dollars and profit. It's about the glory of God. Here's my conviction. 
the more you adjust your life selflessly and sacrificially, the more you move away from self-centered thinking towards God and other-centered thinking, the happier you will be. Or God is a liar. Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord in everything, and He will give you the desires of your heart. Do you believe that? Or do you let the cart in the parking lot? Jesus said, Matthew 6, 33, to people that wanted the best out of life, seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. All I'm saying is this principle is stated as a promise by God in two places with utter clarity. And either I believe it or I don't. And if I don't do it, I'm calling God a liar. Oh, you said, well, Tim, I've never said that. Oh, yes, you have. So have I. Plenty of times. I've done what I wanted to do because I thought that was the path to happiness and God's promise of happiness and God-glorifying living would be untrue. That's a mistake I make too much. We make choices to be happy. God's Word tells us about better choices that bring us into a happiness that's not temporary and fleeting, but is sustainable and lasting. Last principle is the love test. Does it proclaim God's grace to people who don't know it? Don't you notice how Paul says this? Paul says, so whether therefore you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all to the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble. And then he's going to give three categories. Jews, Greeks, the church of God. Folks, those are the three categories of life that were present in Paul's world. There were Jews, there were Gentiles, and there were believers. And some Jews and Gentiles were believers. Paul says, even as I try to please everyone in every way. Paul's saying, I do everything I can to live for the benefit and encouragement of others, not only believers, but unbelievers. Here's what I think Paul would tell you. Paul would say, I adjust my behavior to the circumstance because I am sensitive to how my decisions impact the lives of those around me. And I want them to see Christ above all things. So he says this, I am not seeking my own good. If he was seeking his own good, he wouldn't care about Jews, Greeks, and the church of God. But he does. And so he says, I am not seeking my own good, last part of verse 33, but the good of many so that they may be saved. There's a benefit text amongst the body of Christ. Is my decision to do X, Y, or Z helpful to David Mercer? Yes or no? If it's not, it shouldn't be done. Does it glorify God and lead to ultimate happiness? If it doesn't, it should not be done. And then lastly, does it fit into Paul's matrix? I do everything for the good of many so that they may be saved. The love test. Does it proclaim God's love to outsiders? Does, it, does that concern capture and alter my daily decision making? Does it make a difference? It assumes, number one, that we are with them like Jesus was on a regular basis. But Jesus was with them not because he needed friends. He was with them because there was a driving 
purpose for the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. That was the driving theme of Christ's life in Mark 10, 45. It's why he lived and it's why he died. So, so the love test. Does it proclaim God's love to outsiders? My choices, my decisions, my manner of speaking, my manner of life, my entertainment. Does it say something about God? I'll share with you an illustration. Um, five years ago, I was working on a house in Oxford. And uh, Dave Dietrich came to help me. Dave is one of the more pleasant brothers in Christ that I've ever met. So he said, hey, for your birthday, I'll give you two days. I'll come work with you. So he came and was working with me. Okay? So while he's working with me, we had another friend there, a guy that I had gotten to know just before that, a young man who at 18 years old made a terrible mistake in relationship to a drug situation, ended up in prison into his 30s. Okay? He became a convicted felon. He was there working with us. And after about two days, he's kind of like, all right, you guys never curse. You don't get mad? And he said, it's starting to bother me. <laughs> so given my sarcastic side, I said, okay, note to self. Two days later, Dave's gone. And uh, I broke something. Something snapped. And I said to myself, go ahead, snap. Just quick snap. Say something you would never say. So I did. And it was like, the world stopped rotating. He looked at me, and I looked at him. He was like, PT, what did you just say? I looked at him, I said, if you tell anybody, I'll deny it. <laughs> and who are they going to believe? A pastor or a convicted felon? Why share that? Here's why. And I am no saint. Okay, if you want to do a saint check, she's right here. Okay, you can check if I'm a saint. Or if I'm telling you, I'm, I'm telling you that because I know I have such a deficit. I want you to think something good about me. Okay. Here's what stuck out to me from that circumstance. Something little. Like my attitude when things go wrong. And the way I express myself when things go wrong meant something to someone that didn't know Christ. That simple. Folks, if when I'm perturbed in public settings, I respond just like everybody else. I am not exalting Jesus. I am preferring myself, and I am on a self-centered path. It's that simple. If you let your anger fly, and you act just like unchristian parents in relationship to teachers... You're sending the wrong message. I'm sorry. You're leaving cards all over the parking lot because you don't care about people. This text calls me into community. It makes massive assumptions about relationships in and out of the body of Christ. And those massive assumptions lead to principles that govern how we live. Is my decision-making encouraging others to pursue Jesus Paul said, I do all of this so that they may be saved. And look, folks, Paul went through hell in his personal experience. When he lists his troubles, it is heartbreaking. It is Christ-like. 
He said, I do it all. I bear it all with the right attitude, with the, the Spirit of Jesus, so that they may be saved. He said, that is what captures my attention. For the love of the people of God and for the love of people that do not yet know the Savior. Make the adjustment to live for the glory of God in all things so that they may come to know the greatest truth that one could ever know. At the end of this, Paul says this. Verse 1 of chapter 11, imitate me as I imitate Christ, and full stop. I don't know why most translations leave that in chapter 11, because it doesn't belong there, believe, belongs in chapter 10. You know, the chapter divisions were put in later, okay? That verse, Paul says, look, here's what I'm doing, trying to follow Jesus. Just trying to follow Jesus. Just trying to be a little Christ. That's what the word Christian means. It doesn't mean I am Christ, but I should start to look like him in my daily life, in my decision-making for the glory of God. Not seeking my own good, but living like Jesus who sought the good of others. John 13, he says to the disciples, he says, what you saw me do to you, do it. Let this be your life. As we go into communion, I want to share a quick story with you. I was with a friend recently. We're driving in my truck. And he looks at me and he says, and I didn't look at him because I'm a good driver, undistracted. He said, uh, I don't know how you can do it. I said, what? He said, you don't seem irritated with people. Okay, tell my wife that. Okay. <laughs> he said, you don't get aggravated, you don't get angry, which isn't totally true. Okay, I do. I said, why are you saying that? He says, because I am like out of control. He said, it takes over and it, it, it drives everything I do. He said, how do you do it? Here's what I said to him. I said, I said, uh, I don't give them what they deserve. And it was in like a road rage situation that kind of emerged. And I just kind of let it go. I don't always let it go. I know where my horn is. He said, why? And he's been around me in other circumstances where he's, he's agitated. He, he needs Jesus. And I said to him, I said, look, I said, uh, if God gives me what I deserve, I go to hell. And Christ took the wrath of God that I deserve. So what right do I have to pour out my wrath on the person that lightly offends me when I have offended the highest authority ever? What right do I have to pay them back because Jesus doesn't pay me back. All I was saying is this, the gospel that Jesus stood in my place on the cross took the wrath of God that I deserve for me and does not pour it out on me. He consumes it, absorbs it, forgives, redeems. How could I? How could I live like that? I said, his name is Bob. I said, Bob, the only way I could do that it's I forget what Jesus did for me. It's the only way I could ever justify such self-centered behavior and responses. He goes, oh. <laughs> I said, honestly, no one's ever asked me that question, but that honestly is the answer. There are times that I forget that, and I unleash. I come unglued to my shame. When I do that, I'm thinking about myself. Here's Paul's test. Love your brothers and sisters. 
love the glory of God. Live for the salvation of those that don't know Jesus. Do what the communion table does every time we partake of it. We say, we say Jesus Christ died for our sins. He was buried. He rose again on the third day for the forgiveness of our sins. And hope is found in him. Let that be for us the driving passion of our lives. And it will change everything about us and allow us to live for the glory of the one who gave himself for us. Jesus not only lived for me, he also died for me. As we come to the table this morning, the encouragement simply is this. As the elements are passed out, you have an opportunity to pray. To bow your heads and say, God, I just need to examine myself today. Maybe as you bow your head today, you have to say, God, my life is so self-centered. It's not focused on you. It's not focused on my brothers and sisters in Christ. Forgive me. Dad, husband, mom. Maybe as you look at your life, you see an incredibly selfish, self-centered person emerging. Only the selfless Son of God through His cross can destroy that pattern and redeem your relationships. As we partake of the elements, Lord, make it clear to us that we are sinners and that you are a great Savior, continually, repeatedly saving forgiving. So let us partake today as those who are remembering. If you've never trusted Christ, my prayer for you there very simply this morning is this. Jesus, open eyes so that people will see that Jesus is great hope for sinners like us. And today, God, save, draw hearts, give people the gift of repentance and faith to trust and to know Jesus today. And then let them eat of that bread and drink of that cup as believers in Christ. Blessed as the elements are passed out and then as we receive them, glorify Christ, we pray in his name. Amen.